Behold our God. I mean, is there anything or anyone more wonderful to behold than God? And so quickly we rush to the next thing. So quickly we don't give him the time and the space that's needed to be transformed. So will you join with me in prayer as we open up to Galatians 2? I think it's like 973 in your Bible. I don't have all the page numbers memorized, but I did look it up this morning. So uh, join me in prayer, and then we'll dive uh, right in. So Father, we're here this morning um, just taking a pause. You are magnificent. You are worthy of all praise. There's not a single fiber of our being that should not be subject to you in everything. So as we come now, would every part of our body, soul, and spirit be subjected to you and to the power and the truth of your word? Would you drive down deep into our hearts those things that we most need to hear and practice? Give me strength and clarity. Fill me with your spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So my name is Doug. Uh, You don't see me every week. Um, Most of you know me. But uh, for those who are new, and it seems like we continue to have a lot of new people, um, Northfield is uh, a church that is built around one person, Jesus Christ, not a particular personality of any one human. Uh, We are built around the truth and gospel of Jesus Christ as preached and taught in his word. So you're going to see week to week different people up here who are skilled, gifted, willing, and available. And we love that. Because if I go down, church is doing just fine. And um, if the next guy goes down, church is doing just fine. So our goal here is to exalt Jesus this morning. Um, I am still kind of getting my bearings. I was gone for about 10 days moving my daughter to uh, Arizona. It's a really long drive. And so I'm still kind of a little stiff in the back. Um, And I'm also, many of you who are native Illinoisans know this. Why do we live here? Like, I, I drove through Colorado, and I drove through Arizona, and I drove through Utah, and, I, and I'm like, what am I doing here? It is so much more glorious. So I guess, uh, God, thank you for your creation. It's incredible. It reminds me um, that corn is also beautiful to look at. So are beans. So anyway, um, Morgan Scott Peck, a psychiatrist in the, in the mid to late 1900s, um, shares a story talking about this idea that most of us place a higher premium on what people think than we realize. And we're going to see that in our passage in just a minute. But he illustrates this point through a story of meeting um, someone when he was in high school, about 15 years old. I suddenly realized that for the entire 10-minute period from when I had first seen my acquaintance until the very moment I had, until that very moment, I had been totally self preoccupied. For the two or three minutes before we met, all I was thinking about was the clever things I might say that would impress him. During our five minutes together, I was listening to what he had to say only so that I might turn it into some clever rejoinder. I watched him only so that I might see what effect my remarks had on him. 
And for the two or three minutes after we separated, my sole thought was of those things I could have said that might have impressed him even a little bit more. I had not, in the slightest, cared one whit for my classmate. And so the story goes. If we're thinking of like one thing we want to take home today, it's just going to be this, that living with the fear of man reveals whose words or eyes control you. And make no mistake, we are all controlled at one time or another. We're going to see this in our passage. So if you will, just to honor the Lord, would you stand with me? Grab a print Bible in front of you in the pew and follow along as we read together Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. It's kind of a warm fuzzy to get things started. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Have a seat. You see, Galatians, the letter itself, is actually written to a conglomeration of churches in what is now modern Turkey. This group of churches is ethnically diverse because it's the result of Paul's first and second missionary journeys. And if you really want the background, you can turn to Acts chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and you'll kind of get an understanding of who Paul is writing to. But this church had believers of all kinds. It had practicing Jews who believed that circumcision was the sign of the covenant. It had Gentiles who had been brought in by faith in God, but obviously not the right of circumcision. And over here, they're all together in this church in Galatia. Now, when we think church, we think of like Northfield. Like, hey, there's 400 of us here in this room right now. Um, It wasn't as common to have that many people gathering together in the early letters that we see in Scripture. What we would see is more likely 20 to 30 people gathered in a house. So it's a conglomeration of churches, and that means there's all sorts of of potential for conflict, misunderstanding, uh, because diversity brings that. It just does. And so that's Paul's aim, is to begin to talk about how the gospel unifies. And so if we're looking at fear of man and how it reveals whose words or eyes control us, maybe it'd be helpful if we just defined fear of man just a little bit. Now, you can't really open up to dictionary.com, Uh, and find fear of man. Uh, If you do, it's actually a psychological condition kind of based off trauma of dealing with uh, a male figure in your life. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is um, fear of man is when we act in ways that preserve, promote, or benefit us in front of others. 
Now, we're going to be looking today just real briefly at a problem worth confronting because this is a problem that touches us all. And the second thing we're going to look at is a solution worth living. Verses 11 through 14 describe the problem. We are all controlled at one time or another but what other, by what other people think. So what's really going on? What's happening here? It says that Peter decided he was done eating with the Gentiles. So Peter is a Jew, and he's convinced that Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10 is true. That by grace, through faith, so that no one can boast, that's how you get saved. And so he's totally convinced. So he's now in fellowship with Gentiles who don't believe the same as Jewish believers. And he's enjoying a meal with them. And I, it's important for us to point out this fact that when I think about a meal, when was the last time you went and had a meal with somebody you just really hated? I mean, some of us can think of it. Maybe it's like our in-law dinner. I don't know. Or maybe it's uh, our, we're, we're at work and we have to have a meal with people that we're not close to. But in general, when I choose a meal with someone, what am I saying? This is like participation 101. So go ahead and toss it out. What am I saying when I choose a meal with you? I like you. I'd like you to pay. Whatever it might be, <laughs> it's, there's, a, there's an option overall that just says a meal communicates some level of communion and closeness. And so that's what Peter is communicating by eating a meal with them. So what do you think it means when Peter starts to draw back? So we have to keep this very clear in our mind. The, the letter to the Galatians is to all Christians. They're all believers, right? And so Peter, who's a believer, is eating dinner with Gentiles who are believers. And then James, who is a believer, shows up from the Jerusalem church with Jewish believers. They're all believers. Okay? That levels the playing field. It's Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It unites them all. And what happens to Peter? I don't know. Actually, the term when it says that certain men came ends up communicating this idea that he drew back and he separated. Those two phrases, he drew back and separated himself, they're, they're in the imperfect tense in the Greek, which basically means this. It's a gradual pullback. It's kind of like I'm all in and then something starts to happen and I'm like, ah, uh, I'm not so sure. So Peter, who knows how long, because the scripture doesn't really tell us, but Peter is having this like internal conflict where he's eating with the Gentiles. All of a sudden, James and the other believers show up, and maybe the next meal, Peter's like only going to stay for the, for the appetizer in the main course, but not dessert. And then the, the second meal, he's going to just stay for the appetizer. And then pretty soon, he's out of the picture altogether. What do you think that communicates to the people he's eating with? The same thing it communicates when you make a lunch appointment with somebody and stand them up. You don't care. You're less than. You're not worth my time. That's what's being communicated here. It says he acted hypocritically. Now that term hypocritically or, or hypocrite is actually a, um, an acting term. In the Greek, meaning uh, it's like play acting. They would have used it for people who would have been in theater. So it's almost like in this crowd with these Gentiles, I have this face on. But over here with these Jews, I have this face on. 
So like, I'm two different people. Now let me just ask you. I know Peter is rash, and I know he gets a bad rap all the time because of his like flamboyant, over-the-top, passionate, right? Is this you? Is this you? Do you at times... Yeah, this is, this is Doug. This is the guy who is like all into God's word and loves him and is like so about the mission and the cause of Christ. But over here, this is the guy who's like angry with his kids and short with his wife and upset when he's corrected and gets defensive when anybody provides any level of critique. I'm two different people. And why? Because when I'm in front of someone like Micah Manningham, I really want Micah to like me. I really want Micah to think I'm awesome. I've succeeded pretty well for about 18 years doing this. But like, the hard part is like, Micah's hard to please because I don't know what he's thinking. Isn't that interesting? And so I, I, I put up the face that I think would be most helpful to get the response from him that I think I need. It's duplicitous. And Paul is like, uh, we're just not going to do that. Peter's like, actually, I think it's a good idea. You know, in Hamlet, uh, Shakespeare writes, uh, while Hamlet is speaking to Ophelia, um, God has given you one face, and you make yourself another. How many of us, when we put our heads on the pillow at night, are thinking, I sure would like if I was uh, more organized, or I sure would like it if I could be someone who was more bold in social situations, or I sure would like it if I could get this discipline of reading my Bible down every day, but I just can't. And so we make ourselves another. And it says in verse 14 that his conduct was not in step with the gospel. When was the last time that you corrected your child or even allowed yourself to be corrected because of that phrase. That you weren't in step with the gospel. The term <clears throat> actually connotes this idea of walking a straight line. You know, so it's, it's uh, picture a cop who pulls over a drunk person. And they're like, okay, I need you to walk the line. And he's like this. And he can't quite stay on the line. That's one way to look at the passage. Like the gospel is the plumb line. It's the straight line that we walk. Meaning I, I need to have by grace and through faith a relationship with Jesus Christ that motivates everything, right? And so when I start to teeter off to one side, I'm trying to impress. Or when I try to hide something, I'm, right, I'm missing it. And so the, the idea of walking in step with the gospel also points out this concept that... Um, we're not advancing in the direction of the truth of the gospel. And you're like, well, how would you know that? If I make much of myself and how well I've been doing, like if I say to somebody, hey, you'd be so proud of me. This week I didn't say one cuss word. Proud of who? <laughs> who, who actually did the work in you? Who actually did the change in you? You're, you partnered for sure. But it's the Spirit of God who's bringing about the transformation and the change. And so walking in step with the gospel, this is what Peter is, is being rebuked for. Look, you're not going in the direction of the gospel. You're going in the way of self-serving. It, it benefits you if you don't eat with the Gentiles because then you look like you honor the Jews. But then the Jews are like, hey, wait a minute. I thought we were all one in Christ. Well, maybe I should eat with them, right? So you, you waffle. So then the question becomes, well, how does this play out? 
Is it always wrong, someone might ask me, is it always wrong, Doug, to, to care about the opinions of others? And I would say, no, it's not. I think when the opinions of others trump the truth of God, that's the problem, right? I should care what my wife thinks of me, of my viewing habits, of how I live, of how I carry myself, of my mercy or lack of mercy. I should care about that, right? But to the extent that I am so worried that like every time she looks at me or says something, I'm like undone or I'm nervous or I'm fearful or I'm, that's a problem. That's the fear of man. That's how it affects you. So you wonder, well, how does this play out in real life? And I have a couple of suggestions because inevitably, remember our big idea that living with the fear of man reveals whose words or eyes control you. Inevitably, it's what people see and then what they say that drives us. So here are some examples. Number one, a tendency to hide something embarrassing. You'll know you're struggling with fear of man when you have a tendency to hide things that are embarrassing. Or number two, you overthink what you look like or you wear or what you wear. And then you compare it to someone who looks or dresses on trend. You're like, if I could just look like that person, if I just had that wardrobe, if I just had, then I would be good. Or number three, you exaggerate an accomplishment or you fish for compliments. You, need to, you just need to make sure that other people know what you finished that day. You just need to make sure that they understand that that was the, the assignment that had to get turned in, that, you know, you had it done far before class and you, and you got an A. You know, you just, you're fishing for compliments. You might say it this way. You might say a negative hoping someone will say a positive. Man, I'm so fat. When really you're like shredded like me. And... Um, and someone might look at you and be like, no, you're not fat. And you're like, um, tell me more. <laughs> right? That's how it works. And so, uh, or, or this, you observe, I throw that in air quotes, someone else is parenting and evaluated as less than. Man, if those people would just understand what boundaries look like for a kid, they'd just be better parents. Or you look at someone else's parenting and be like, man, I want a parent like that. I wish my kids could turn out like theirs. Or number five, you get angry when you're criticized. And you, your, your immediate knee-jerk response is defense. Well, you have no idea what I've been through this week. You, there's always a reason. Or number six, you judge or evaluate others by what you're doing and they're not. You know, it's just the really simple thing. Hey, Lori, when was the last time that you fasted for four days in a row? Oh, I did that last week. So sorry that you're not as close to Jesus as me. But it's possible, right? Like, there's a little bit of, of, of judging and evaluating others. So the question is, where does this lead? Where does a mindset like this lead on a day-in, day-out basis? And maybe it's best to illustrate it like this. Um, it's been a while since I've done this, but I need the Stuber boys up here, all three of you. Come on, fellas. Oh, come on. Oh, this one, okay, we'll, we'll see, I guess there's four of you, I guess. Okay, so each of you hold one of these, okay? Now, I want you to stand, like, all over here. You go right there, you're, like, right here, and then you're back there, okay? Now, um, right here, this, this is my wife's opinion, 
okay? I made you a girl because you need to be humbled. Um, and then, <laughs> this is the elder's opinion. He's super wise, I just thought, maybe. Um, and then this, uh, I, I, I just wrote a book a little while ago, and so he is the person who leaves the nasty review online, okay? Because he can be sharp with his words. Is that true? Maybe? Okay. So <laughs> here's Doug, right? And I have an arrow and, and let's pretend that the arrow is my identity. And I'm trying to hit. Now, these guys start moving around. Start just, like, walking back and forth, right? Now, look at this. Like, how difficult. I'm not a hunter by any stretch, but I could ask my brother Alan or about 85 other people in this church how hard it is to hit a moving target. It's really hard. So what does this produce in me if I, you know, maybe my first shot is, like, off to the side? Maybe this one, my, my shot is like, eee, I can't like, maybe my next shot is like right there, right? And, and this one, I still can't get it, but like maybe it's a bullseye, right? Maybe I get that one, okay? So do you think that I'm going to be at peace? Do you? No, absolutely not. Do you think I'm going to be somebody who can love other people well? No, because love requires sacrifice. Love requires viewing the other person, as Paul says in Philippians 2, as more important than myself. Love requires that I do nothing out of vain ambition or conceit, right? I just made three targets of people. I've effectively not made them people. I've made them targets. You're telling me how good of a believer in Jesus Christ I am when Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection finished it. And I'm over here going, no, I think I'm going to make targets. I'm going to think I'm going to hunt for your opinion until you tell me what's right so that I feel good about myself. What a joke. Am I right? Like, what a joke. And we all do it. Thanks, guys. We all do it. And the crazy part is, none of us really need training here. We just do. The question to ask yourself if you're taking notes is whose approval, if I don't have it, wrecks me? Whose approval, if I don't have it, wrecks me? And if your list has anything before the name of Jesus Christ, <laughs> you struggle with fear of man. You just do. That's why Paul says in Galatians 1.10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? He's asking a question. He's saying he's watching the church at Galatia and he's noticing that they're kind of falling apart and, and, and trusting a different gospel. And he's like, hey, look, if you're going to do that, there's going to be some problems. And then he says, from my own life, am I looking for the approval of men? Am I looking for your approval? Do I need you to tell me I'm good? Paul's like, well, no. If I'm trying to please man, how can I please God? I wouldn't be a servant of his. In shorthand, if I try to live for the approval of man, I run counter to the identity that was purchased and paid for by Jesus Christ. It's foolishness. So then what's the solution? Well, you see this idea of striving at the very beginning. That's not the solution. I'm going <laughs> to explain. The idea here 
is like we read this and it's like, whoa, you know, here comes Paul into town. He's been an apostle here for a little bit and, and he has a harsh rebuke for Peter and not even just like a harsh rebuke, but it's like he pulls Peter up in front and he, and he has the conversation in front of everybody. And so I think we're kind of tempted to go, man, that feels a little heavy handed, Jesus. Like when we're reading this text, like why would he do that? And I think the simplest answer is because by his hypocrisy, it says that even others were led astray. He had a private matter in his heart that became a public matter relationally, and it was poisoning the church. And you're like, well, why does that matter? Because look, we tolerate fear of man in a church and we give it quarter and we kind of like protect it and we say it's you know, not that big of a deal when it destroys people, totally destroys people. And so Paul, in like fashion, he's not saying, look, dude, get your act together. This is a sanctification issue. You should know better by now. He actually reverts to the very simple truth of the gospel of justification. You've forgotten some things, Peter. You've forgotten some things. And it's, and it's shown up in how you're practicing your faith. You see, when we think, who's it really going to hurt? You know, Peter's actions here. Why in the world would you, Paul, just go straight for the jugular and talking about how one is made right with God? Why can't you just pull Pete aside and tell him, hey, get your act together, you'll figure it out? The answer is, is no. No, no, no. We have to be firm on this. Why? And I just say it this way. Just as Paul and Jesus blasted the Pharisees for their hyper-law-keeping, thinking it brought them closer to God, so too fear of man is a kind of law-keeping. It's a kind of law-keeping unto myself. I'm the one who establishes the laws. I'm the one who sets the rules for the game and how it's played. I just had my three targets up here. My three targets are going to be different than Luke Port's three targets. My three targets are going to be different than my sister Sherry's three targets. You're like, well, that seems like then everybody's going to be, you know, not really secure and full of peace. Exactly. That's why Paul rebuked him in front of everybody. Because he's like, Peter, look what damage this does to the church. I mean, think about the Gentile believers. Are we not good enough like these Jewish church-raised Christians? I guess not. So Peter's actions lead to an interpretation of inferiority. Or maybe look at the Jewish believers. Good, now these guys see that we had it right all along as they're looking at Peter. So Peter's actions then cause the Jewish believers to have a superior position. Either way, not good. And it's funny. I was recently talking with a new Christian in their 30s. They're getting to know others at their church and spending time with them and their families. And, and I was just asking, like, say, hey, what are some things that you've noticed? And they said, well, I, this is actually going to be kind of funny. I've noticed not all Christians have the same parenting perspectives or practices. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> tell me something new, okay? I've noticed not all Christians have the same parenting practices or perspectives. And I kind of judge when someone does it different than me. Isn't it funny? Brand new Christian, guy hasn't been raised in the church, and he's like, 
a few years into it, and he's already making value judgments based on how somebody else is parenting. We don't need any training here, do we? Our hearts will just default toward that. So truth to life, it's, you know, we see the opposites of lawkeeper and lawbreaker most clearly in Jesus' parable in Luke 11, or Luke 15, 11 through 32. You have the prodigal who's the total lawbreaker. You have the older son who's the lawkeeper. And, and both of them are just out to lunch in different ways. And how does Jesus respond to them both? In the story, the father arms open, ready to receive, the, the lawbreaker. But the law keeper, he just provides an invitation. He's just like, hey, look, everything I have is yours. You're welcome to come. In both instances of breaker or keeper, it's arms open wide. How can I receive you? So there's hope for us who struggle with fear of man. And then in the resting portion, to wrap things up, Here's where Paul is emphatic. Three times he uses that term justified. We know that a person is not justified. We also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified. Or by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul, by emphasis and restatement and repetition, I don't know what's going on. Am I good? Sorry. Uh, by emphasis and repetition, is just reminding us, like, hey, look, you never mature past the truth of the gospel. You never somehow get so mature in your walk with Jesus that the fact that Jesus is your substitution and, and your atonement and, and then your righteousness and your right standing, you never get past that. You never mature past your need for Jesus day in and day out. The moment you start to think, like, I think today that I can kind of get by on my own, you are screwed. We have to take it at face value. Here's the understanding. If I don't believe and trust with an ever-increasing joy in the fact that Jesus has done for me what I never could, would, or any other way do for myself, if we can't get to that point, we will constantly struggle with what others think of us to the degree that it's crippling, totally crippling. So listen here. Romans 3.22 says the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Or 3.26 of Romans, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Or Galatians 3.22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Or Ephesians 3, 11 and 12, this was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Or Philippians 3, 9, and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. How many of those verses said anything about how well I responded to my wife or the elders or the critic online. None of them. The basis and the foundation for all of your right standing before God was perfectly, 100%, entirely, forever accomplished by Jesus Christ. And it's just a receiving sort of thing. 
It's like I'm going to believe and have faith that what he did is adequate, sufficient, powerful for me. And if I could just say it this way, to everyone here, as I'm speaking just directly to your heart, you are not what you do. You are not what you have. You are not what you desire. You are not what others think of you. You are what your faith by grace in Jesus Christ says. That's it. That's the truest thing about you. The truest thing is that you are a child of God, that you are loved and chosen and holy and blameless and forgiven and redeemed and adopted and loved. That's the truest thing about you. So then from a truth to life perspective, what are some practical suggestions? Because you're like, well, that, that's great and all, Doug, but like I still live with myself and I know the internal dialogue that's going to be happening. Or I still live with my spouse and sometimes it can get a little dicey and I don't, or my boss is ridiculous, you have no idea. I would say this. Confess, rehearse, and ask. And the brief explanations there. Confess your sin. Confess your fear. Confess your lack of faith first to God and then to others. And you're like, well, you don't know. There was a time once that I confessed something and then someone, like, they blabbed it. Um, and I would just say, you're going to be mishandled. Not everybody will understand how it is that we should be handling a confession and they will fumble the bag. It will happen. It's okay. This happened to Jesus. When Jesus was getting ready for his darkest hour, he took his three closest friends and he went into the garden and he prayed and they all fell asleep. And he came back and told them, hey, I really need your help here. I'm confessing my fear. I'm confessing the struggle. And then they fell apart and fell asleep again. And then after it all happened, what did they do? They deserted him. And Jesus still leaned in. So confess, confess. Number one, God will never mishandle you. Others may, but how are they to learn if you just clam up and stop? It's important to confess. Second thing is to rehearse. Those, those scriptures that I shared a moment ago, um, we rehearse gospel truth because we are gospel amnesiacs. We forget so quickly, so easily how we are made right with God. And that affects everything. So rehearse gospel truths every morning, every noonday, every evening. Rehearse them. And then finally, ask yourself a simple question before you speak or act. Why am I saying or doing or avoiding X, Y, or Z? You're like, well, that will take a really long time. It does. Transformation takes a long time. Transformation is not easy. Transformation means we have to ask ourselves the hard questions. And so when it comes to stuff like this, we can't just kind of assume. I mean, Peter was the guy who let a little 12-year-old slave girl talk him out of following Jesus, denying him. And then later on, a number of years later, after Jesus has left and he's part of this church planting movement for which we're all responsible, like we're here now because of that, right? Right? And Peter, again, has fear of man. But then in 1 Peter 3, 
He's talking about suffering for the sake of the gospel. And he says this phrase, do not fear what they fear. You go, that's interesting coming from the guy who feared. (laughs) And then he goes on to say, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that lies within you, but to do it with gentleness and respect. But always revere Christ as Lord. So he's learned his lesson. Does he still struggle? For sure. But he's learning his lesson. And so as we wrap up and we head out to grab lunch, um, I just want to pray for us. If you're somebody who's here who's recognizing maybe the struggle that you've had and you would like prayer, there's going to be plenty of people around uh, down front for prayer. And you can just stay where you're at after people leave and we'll come find you and pray for you. Um, But yeah, just fear of man reveals whose words and eyes control us. Let's make those Jesus. So, Father, thank you for who you are and what you've done. We ask that you move uh, in our congregation to make us people who live authentically before you and before others. We love you, and we bless your name. Amen.